So this Wednesday, some of you might be thinking, I, I wish I just had a little bit more study of the Word. I wish I had a little bit more time with the Lord. Well, next Wednesday, we're going to be starting a brand new series, and it's from the uh, Epistle to James. And it is really going to be a great epistle for us to study together. It's an, it's an epistle of hope and encouragement. And so if you're able to make it, it starts at 7 o'clock, and we welcome all to come to it. And uh, also, um, planning ahead, and I need to have a, at least somewhat of a number count. We'll be putting a sign-up sheet out next week. In uh, uh, This fall, we're having both a men's uh, conference and a women's conference, conference, a little getaway. And uh, it's going to be at, Os how do you pronounce it? Casa Wasco, uh, it's Christian campgrounds, and uh, it is on Wasco Lake, so it's only like a 45-minute drive. We've uh, actually have done marriage conferences there before. It's a, it's a really beautiful setup, and um, so for the women, it's going to be September 27th through the 28th, and for the men, it's going to be October 11th through 12th, and the price they gave us, is, I believe, is really awesome. It's $96. That includes uh, your lodging and three meals in the conference center. And so we encourage you to think about coming to it. The, um, for the men, it's going to be play the part of a man. And when we talk about playing the part of a man, you know, we think of, whoo, whoo. And that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about play the part of the man as far as being obedient to God's word. You know, there's a lot of guys that think being a Christian man, you know, and in reality, that's a sign of insecurity as far as I'm concerned. A real man is someone who loves the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. That's a real man, and we're going to be talking about what it takes to be a real man of God. So I encourage you to set those dates aside. All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and how thankful we are for your word because your word is true, your word is able to guide and direct us, and your word is that lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And so as we break open this precious word, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, minister to each one of us, guide me in breaking it open in such a way that people might be able to hear and grab those little nuggets of truth that would encourage them in life. And Father, I also pray that your Holy Spirit would be among us to minister to our deepest need. And I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we have to understand that the Word of God is only as effective as our willingness to believe it and to apply it to our lives. I mean, you might have ten Bibles in your house, and it means nothing if you're unwilling to believe it and to apply it. And the reality is that that at times can become very difficult because life is a challenge. We live in a time that discouragement, temptation, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, influences are coming in from every different direction. But yet, the Word of God is calling us to be submissive to what the Lord has commanded us. And His commands are not burdensome. His commands are for our encouragement. There is no one I've ever talked to that has come to me and said, you know, Pastor, I've been following the Word of God. I've been obedient to it. I've been reading. I've been in prayer. And I, I don't know. Life is just tough. Never. It's usually people who are going through those kinds of difficulties that I encourage them. And I say, well, have you been in the Word? Well, not like I should be. 
And when people say not like I should be, you know how that's translated to a pastor? They're not at all. And, uh, and, and they, they'll also say, you know, no, I haven't been praying that much. But we have to realize that the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it's able to divide even to the soul, even the thoughts and, and intents of our heart. So we need to be in the Word in such a way that we believe what, we, what it says and we're willing to apply it to our lives. Listen to what it tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 26. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. We can't build our house on the sand. We need to build our house on the rock who is Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to be in his word. We have to believe it. We have to apply it. Because every time we read God's word, we should be asking ourselves, what is it speaking to me? What is the Lord trying to show me? What direction is he leading me in? Because, you know, when it says the word of God is alive, it really is. You can't sit and read and study the word of God and just kind of like, da, da, da. It really is alive if you allow it to be. And the only way it's alive and you allow it to be is when you let it change your heart and to change your life. You know, if you, uh, I remember when I took epidemiology, which was when I was doing my undergraduate work, I think it was four or five years ago, 50 years ago. Anyway, uh, one of the things that I remember is when you have, you know, some kind of uh, uh, either a bacteria or a virus or fungi or whatever it might be comes into your body when it comes in, it affects you. It can be deadly. But we have to understand there is a Holy Spirit, He, the Holy Spirit, who desires to come in and also affect us only in a positive way, rather than making us sick, making us well, making us whole, making us strong in the Lord. The only way that we can walk in obedience to God is by the power, the dunamis of His Holy Spirit. Dunamis is the same uh, word we get dynamite from. And it means the ability to do. The ability to do what? The ability to do whatever God desires you to do. And a lot of times it's just changing our lives. You know, we live in a time that I think is probably more difficult to be a Christian, a good Christian, than almost any time of his, in history. You know why? Anything that you think of that's tempting, that's sinful, is available. I mean, even people my age, we can look back. There are a lot of things that just weren't available like there are today. And so there's even more reason in the day and the time in which we're living for people to be engrossed and engaged in the Word of God not in just giving it some cursory reading and, you know, but to really allow it to minister to us, to encourage us. And so we're going to find, as we even look at this portion of Scripture, it might seem like kind of an odd portion, and there's a lot of repetition as we're in this uh, end of Exodus, and as far as the, the articles of the tabernacle and also the clothing for the priests and his sons, the high priest and his sons, who are also priests to the Lord. But we're going to find... There's meaning in every word of God. And so if you want to open along with me, we're in chapter 39. I'm picking up in verse 22. And um, 
He made the robe of the ephod of woven work, all of blue. And Pastor Frank Jr., he did the first part of this chapter and was talking about the garments for the high priest. Verse 23, And there is an opening in the middle of the robe like the opening of coat of mail with woven bindings all around the opening so that it would not tear. Now, one of the things when you read that, if you're like me, you're thinking, wait a second, like a coat of mail? That's what the knights wore in the Middle Ages. This was written way before that. So what's being talked about there? Well, sometimes the translators use terms that uh, in the old English have a different meaning than they do today. So a coat of mail just meant like a type of uh, undergarment. But as it's used here in, in the Hebrew, it's tahara. And what it literally means, um, that word, it means uh, a linen corset or undergarment. Because you have to understand, Scripture made it clear that when the high priest was going up um, to the brazen altar in order to offer, or to offer incense or to wash, he had to be wearing undergarments so his nakedness was not revealed. That's what Scripture tells us. So this is just part of those undergarments that are being talked about in this portion of Scripture. But I know some people, they read that coat of, coat of mail. You remember the knights and they had the woven metal and stuff like that? Think, What's that in there? That wasn't even invented yet. But anyway, that's the understanding. And they made on the hem of the robe pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet and of fine woven linen. And they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates, pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between um, the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, and a bell. And I was, I was going to go all the way around the robe. But anyway, all around the hem of the robe to minister in. Now, notice how many times... When the portion Pastor Frank had this morning, it was in that as well. But notice how many times it says, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this wasn't a suggestion. This was a command. The Lord had very specific ways things were to be put together and the way things were to be made because they had deep spiritual implications. It's all about our relationship with him and drawing close to him. Um, verse 27. They made tunics artistically woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, a turban of fine linen, exquisite hats and fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen, and a sash of fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread, made by a weaver as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then they made the, the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And they tied it, and they tied to it a blue cord to fasten it above on the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses. Obviously, it wasn't assembled at that point. They just brought it to him, everything being completed. And it was, it was like a temporary dwelling. It was like a tent. They would put it up like this huge campsite in a sense, only it was a tabernacle to the Lord. The tent and all its, all its furnishings, its clasps, 
its boards, its bars, its pillars, and sockets. The covering of ram skins dyed red, and the covering of badger skin, and the veil of the covering, the ark of the testimony with its poles, and the mercy seat, the table, all the utensils, and the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamp, the lamp set in order, all its utensils, and the oil for light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, the screen for the tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grate of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the lever with its bases, the, the hinges for the court, the hangings for the court, I'm sorry, its pillars and its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords, and its pegs. And I mentioned this last week. Even the pegs were necessary. Like when you think of all these beautiful you know, um, utensils and all these beautiful uh, fabrications that were made for the putting up of the tabernacle, even the tent peg was important. Without the tent peg, it wouldn't stand up. And so we have to realize we might, we might not be the altar of incense. Maybe we're a tent peg. But guess what? It's necessary. Every part of the body of Christ is necessary. All the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meetings. And the garments of ministry to minister in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron the priest and his son's garments to minister as priest. According to all the Lord had commanded Moses. So the children of Israel did all the work. Then Moses looked over all the work and indeed they had done it as the Lord had commanded. Just as they had done it and Moses blessed them. Can you imagine the task of putting all these things together for the setting up of the tabernacle, for all the furnishings, for all the clothing of the high priest. I mean, the intricate task of putting all this together, and now they're bringing it before Moses, perfectly made, just as God had commanded Moses. And there it was. And no wonder, I mean, Moses must have been so blessed, and he blessed the people. How amazing. Now, the clothing of the priests was not only beautiful, but it was also very practical, with many allusions as far as not only their ministering to the Lord, but our ministering to the Lord as well. The opening in the middle of the robe was a head opening, kind of like if you put a poncho on and you wrapped it around and put a, a waistband around it. And the reason for that was it was easy to put on. And we have to realize in the same way you and I, as believers, the Lord has made it easy for us to put on the Holy Spirit, to put on Jesus Christ. In Romans thirteen fourteen, it says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lust. If we put on the Lord Jesus Christ... Take up your cross daily, Scripture says. Not something we do as a one-time event. Every day, every morning, we take up our cross. We put on the Jesus Christ. We say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And when we do that, he will keep us from all the entrapments and all the sin and all the discouragement of this world. Because I guarantee you, brother and sister, the minute you turn your eyes off the Lord, you're going to trip and you're going to fall. You're going to trip and you're going to fall. But here's the wonderful thing. It's one of my favorite verses of Scripture because I need it so often. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's one that probably most people don't uh, memorize, but I have. And that is uh, 
the thing we have to understand that the sign of a righteous man is this. Though he falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked fall to calamity. In other words, the sign of a righteous man is not that he doesn't fall. The sign of a righteous man is what? He gets back up. And the thing is, when you get back up, you don't have to go back to the beginning. You get back up right where you fell, and you start following the Lord. Because we live in a, in a world, we live in a society where there are so many trip-ups and temptations, it's just absolutely amazing. And just like that, without realizing it, you can fall. I remember, um, it was probably a couple years ago, and we were uh, having our adult night dinner out, and it was in downtown Syracuse. We were going to, um, what's your friend's pizza place, Frank? What is it? Pepino's Pizzeria. And after that, we are going to walk across the street to where they had an ice cream stand. And we're walking across the street, and I'm walking, and I stepped in a pothole. And before I even knew it, I'm down on the ground. And you know when you're old. Because when you're young and you fall like that, people are, ha, 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 And when you're old and you fall like that, people are, ah! Should we call an ambulance? <laughs> you know. But you know, it's pretty embarrassing. Boom, I was down. In fact, I still remember, I think you were with me, Larry, and this guy rode by in a bicycle, and he said, sue the city. But then, he did. He actually said that. <laughs> but anyway, it was, just like that, I was down. And honestly, even at the time, it made me think of how easy it is to trip up in this world, how easy it is for Satan to trip you up. He lays all kinds of potholes and mines around us, and that's the reason. It doesn't mean we're never going to fall, but brothers and sisters, when you fall, get back up as quickly as you can. And Jesus will wash you clean and give you that brand new start. It's so amazing. Now... Um, what is the purpose or meaning of the pomegranate and the bells, the gold bells that are in between it? We have to understand what Scripture is all about. From the very fall, from the fall of man, right from the beginning, all of God's Word is about redemption. All of God's Word is pointing to Jesus Christ, one who would come as a propitiatory, victorious, you know, vicarious sacrifice for all of our sin. Jesus Christ came to pay the price in full. And the Bible's all about it. Because God created us for the purpose of having fellowship with him. Intimate koinonia with him. That's why he created us. And so when Satan tripped man up like the big pothole and he sinned, God was not willing to let us lying flat on our face on the ground. He was going to provide a way for us to get back up. And the way we get back up is Jesus Christ. How wonderful it is. Not only does it say, when we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. I think so often we only think of that as our initial salvation. But there's a lot of times I have to be saved for myself. And you call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. What a wonderful promise it is that we have. And so anyway, when we look at the pomegranate and all of that, like I said, everything that we're reading about is relating to Jesus Christ and his desire to establish his church. The word, the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which simply means called out. Called out of what? Called out of darkness into his wondrous light. We are the ecclesia. 
We are the church of Jesus Christ. We've been called out of the darkness of this world into the light of his holiness and his glory that is ours if we simply accept it. Listen to this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation. Listen to what it's saying here. A royal priesthood. It's talking to we as believers. A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him. Listen, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had obtained mercy, but now have attained much mercy. We're his chosen people. We're called out to be his. And so we have to understand that the pomegranate, I think, is an illusion of the church as a chosen set-apart people to follow Jesus Christ. Now, please follow me, because the pomegranate is a very interesting fruit. I like pomegranates. I don't know about you. But one of the reasons it's such an interesting fruit is you eat seeds. Can you imagine if you open your orange or your apple and you pop the seeds out through the rest away? <laughs> oh, well, I love these, you know. But in the pomegranate, you eat the seed, right? You know about it. And the globe shape of the pomegranate is a very tough skin, and inside are hundreds of seeds. Now listen to this. Each seed is covered with a little red juice, as you all know, if you've eaten a pomegranate. And the seeds are in groups. And each group is both held together and separated from one another, from other groups, by a flexible membrane. Now, here's the illusion I get from this. This isn't something I read anywhere or that it's doctrine. This is what I get from it. As everything in Scripture has meaning, I believe the mystery of the pomegranate is the same as the mystery of the church. The seeds represent individual Christians covered by the blood of Jesus, that little bit of red juice. And they're gathered together in local churches where they cling together and support one another. And yet, each local church is part of the whole body of Jesus Christ, and it's held together by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, as far as true Bible-believing churches, there should never be competition. Our church is better than your church. Talk to someone, and, and uh, so, are you a believer? Yeah, I love Jesus Christ. Where do you go to church? I go to such and such church, and we teach right through the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Man, put all you have into that church. Not, well, I'll tell you where there's a little better church. <laughs> That's a wrong attitude, even though we might feel that way. But, but it is a wrong attitude. Uh, we want people to be plugged in because the church of Jesus Christ, universal church of Jesus Christ, is still all one. Just as the pomegranate, it's still all one. And one day the Lord is going to call us to be with him. Now the bells... Are, are very interesting. And one of the things that I think is so cool, it's so amazing, and if you want a good book to read, I'm always recommending good books to read. And this isn't what you would call a Christian book, but it's very interesting and it has very definite prophetic implications. And it's called The Jewish and Arab Wars. 
And you can go online, you can get, get the book, and it's a historical book about the wars. It's amazing. But one of the wars that they fought was called the Six-Day War. I'm going to regress, and this is just kind of off topic, but on May 14, 1948, Israel declared itself as a nation. And the very first government to uh, recognize Israel as a nation was Harry S. Truman for the United States. And so the minute Israel declared themselves a nation, all of the Arab nations converged upon it to destroy it completely. And they were looking good in coming to do that because Israel basically had no air force. What was interesting, you can uh, go on on YouTube and you can watch this, and the name of it is Above and Beyond. Beyond. True, true, True documentary. Well, what if you said it was a fake documentary? No, this was a true documentary about American pilots, Jewish pilots, who were distinguished um, heroes in World War II. They were were dog-fighting pilots, you know, in World War II. And when the Israeli war broke out, they realized that they needed an air force. And so these guys volunteered to go. Now, here's the interesting thing. It was against the law in the United States at that time. If they went, they would lose their citizenship, and if they came back to the United States, they'd be sent to prison if they went and helped the Israeli Air Force. And so there was this guy, I can't remember his name, once again. What is it? Hmm? Schwimmer. And uh, he actually bought these C-140s, and he told uh, the people of the United States that he was establishing an airlines. But what he was doing is he was actually putting fuselages and wings and engine parts and so forth in these planes to fly them over to Israel in order to reconstruct them to provide an air force for them. Now, one of the interesting things is the reason that a lot of these pilots were willing to and wanted to go to help Israel was because it was its homeland. But they, they actually showed signs for employment, for pilots, for the airlines in the United States at that time. And right, in this, right on the sign it says, Christians only. If you're a Jew, you couldn't get a job. Yeah, right here. So anyway, these guys all went over there, and Egypt was one day from coming into the Negev and just wiping Israel off the map. And they took off three planes three U.S., you know, Army Air Corps pilots flew into the Egyptian army and decimated quite a few of their tanks and some of their other machinery. And so Egypt put out this big cry and put out a thing in the newspaper, we're being attacked by this massive, you know, air force, and there's more to come. And it stopped them in their tracks. It was three guys. But... The whole point I'm making is that when God is in something, because you have to realize a lot of times uh, when you read old commentaries on the book of Revelation, it makes no sense at all. And the reason was because when you read the book of Revelation, you can't read it without recognizing that in that book it talks about Israel being a nation with Jerusalem as as its capital. You know, everything is about Jerusalem and Israel. 
Well, Jerusalem and Israel did not exist at that time, and there, there was no way they believed it could ever exist. And so that's why you read these old commentaries and they just take the book of Revelation and just make it some kind of an illusion or just some kind of a parody, when in reality it's a book of future history in chronological order, you see. And so we have to understand that Israel is a miracle. And that miracle is saying to us, brothers and sisters, that miracle of Israel is saying to us, his return is near. Nearer now than when we first believed. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait. But anyway, I got off track. After the Six-Day War, uh, Israel had access to a lot of its ancient archaeological sites, which it hadn't ever had. And in doing their digging, do you know what they found? They found one of the solid gold bells from the high priest's robe. You can go online and just look up the Israeli Department of Antiquities and you'll be amazed at the things that you see. I stood in the museum of the book and actually stood there and there's a little hole you can put your finger through and, and I could touch one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's in the Hebrew that can be read today. The most ancient writings. It's amazing. And there's so many artifacts to show that, you know, Israel what is now Israel, was the home place, the home nation for the ancient Israel as it was in, in, in we study these portions of Scripture. There's absolutely no archaeological discoveries that show an ancient heritage of the Palestinians. By the way, do you know who the original Palestinians were? The Jews, exactly. In fact, if you uh, watch this video, it's t talking about the Palestinians, the Palestinians, and you think, what? It's talking about the Jews. The Palestinian Philharmonica Orchestra, or whatever it was called, maybe I'm putting things together, but anyway, the Palestinian Orchestra were Jews. It was Jewish. Now, um, the thing we have to understand is that the bells, the pure bells represented praise. You know, they, they rang, and it represented the purity of praise to the Lord. And the highest form of ministry, pay attention to this, brothers and sisters, the highest form of ministry that we can be involved in is not evangelism, it's not helping others, it's not giving to the poor. The highest form of ministry that you, can, you and I can be involved in is praising the Lord. Nothing higher. All other ministries lead from that. Overflow from that. Praising Jesus. I love what it tells us in Psalm 98, verses 4 through 6. It says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the sound of a psalm. With trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord and the King. And so we have to understand the greatest ministry we have to the Lord is just praising Him. You know, so often we're willing to, you know, tell people how great we are and, and uh, you know, and, and do all kinds of, you know, I, I'm this great Christian and I... And, but how often do we spend time just praising God? Just getting alone. I mean, we praise the Lord together. That's one of the reasons worship is so is so valuable and it's so uplifting when we're worshiping the Lord together. 
because it's singing praises to God. He's the focus, not us. He's the focus. You know, we don't get up here and, yeah, just because it's all about us. And I'm dancing, man, look at me, and I, you know, my knees. Anyway, uh, we're up here doing all, it's not, not about us. It's about him. It's worshiping him and he alone. Now, many, they talk about the Lord or they talk about the many things that they are doing for the Lord. But they seldom encourage people to or praise the Lord in front of others. Praise the Lord, all you people. In Hebrews 3.15, it says, By him let us continually offer, listen to this, the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Because we have to understand, just as the lamp in the tabernacle, or eventually the temple, was never to go out, neither should our praise ever go out. We should always be praising the Lord. And what we have to understand, the sacrifice, it's called the sacrifice of praise because the purest and most beautiful praise is when you're going through hard times, when you're going through difficulties. And you still praise your name, Jesus. I mean, it's easy when everything's going great. Oh, I just praise God. But when things are tough and you're going through trials and difficulties, I praise you, O Lord. I don't know why, but I know you're, or even how, but I know you're working through this. I'm trusting this into your hands. And then the crown that they wore was a symbol not of human authority, but of kingdom authority, God's authority. Jesus is the king of kings, and we simply work under his authority. And the plate on the hat was what the turban was all about. Holiness to the Lord. Holiness to the Lord. And that is what we're supposed to give our lives as holiness to the Lord. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but the thing is we strive for perfection. You know, you've never seen a baseball player that comes up and says, you know what, I'm striving to get on base three out of ten times. What do they say? I want to get on base every time. And yet, if a player gets on base three out of ten times, they're saying he's batting 300. It's a pretty good average. 350, you know, 35% of the time. But we should be striving for holiness. Holiness is the call of God on our lives. It's not talking about us being perfect. It's about us proclaiming him to be perfect. And his ways are right and just always. And in any way that I'm not in compliance to God's word... I'm wrong. And I confess of it. God help me to be holy, to be righteous, to be exactly who you've called me to be for the sake of the ministry and for your word. And Aaron was to wear this crown and the other articles of clothing as he ministered to the Lord. And um, we've covered the meaning of all these other articles, you know, that we, we in the past few weeks. And God is God of our church, and we're simply his workers. We're the work of his hand. You know, in Isaiah 64, 8, it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are the potter, and all we are the work of your hand. And all we are the work of your hand. Israel is excited to build the tabernacle because it represented God's presence. And you and I have the presence of God by the Holy Spirit. 
In Colossians 1.27, it says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches and the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. Listen to this. What is the mystery among, among the Gentiles? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, the old-timers, years ago in the church, the preacher would be preaching, and one of the old-timers would say, Glory! And you think, what? What are they talking about? The fact is, we're promised glory. And we experience glory even now in our relationship and our worship of the Lord. And so we have this promise of being one day in the literal presence of God, but now spiritually we can be in the presence of God as well through our praise and worship. We can experience his glory. Now, I mentioned it over and over again how Moses did as the Lord commanded him to do. God is God of his church, and we're simply his workers. What has God commanded us to do? What has God commanded you to do? Maybe God's commanded you to just open your mouth. I don't want to get off and pointing at myself or anything like that, but, you know, because it sounds so like I'm bragging. Maybe I am. No, I'm not really. But I had to have a water sample done for our pool because I can't get it clear. My normal process didn't work. And I went in to have the water sample done, and the young, young man who was, uh, um, you know, testing my water and everything, just real sad. So I, I said to him, I said, what's wrong? He goes, I don't want to get into it. And I said, you can get into it with me. I'm a pastor. <laughs> the kid opened up, laid everything out, almost started crying. And I was able to encourage him because in my life, I went through just about the exact same thing as him. And he thanked me for being there. And I got outside in the car and I thanked God for get, making me willing to open my mouth. You know, so often we're just quiet. We need to open our mouth and be useful to the Lord. Notice in verse 1, the very first verse of this portion, it says the priest's garments were um, called clothes of ministry. In other words, they were clothes of serving the Lord. And the holy garments were never meant to be paraded around and to be showed off. And look at me, I'm the high priest, or I'm one of the priests of God. And in the same way, you and I who are clothed in Jesus Christ, we're not to walk around saying, look at me, I'm just such a great Christian. You know, so many Christians walk around with a holier-than-thou attitude. Have you ever heard that term? Yes, I'm just such a great Christian, and you're just awful. You know, and even when they're evangelizing, you filthy, rotten sinner, you should get saved. I mean, they might not, they, you know what I'm saying? They might not actually say those words, but that's the intent of their heart, the way they are. But the thing we have to realize is that there but by the grace of God go I. You've heard that old euphemism, and it's true. If it wasn't for the grace of God, that's where we'd be going. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. In Philippians 2, in verses 3 and 4, listen to this. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem, listen, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not uh, only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's what we're called to be as Christians, lowly servants. And brothers and sisters, here's the thing. There's no greater blessing that we have than being believers in Jesus Christ of knowing we're going to heaven, of knowing that we have a hope 
that is even beyond this life. What a wonderful thing it is. And that hope is something that just gives us peace in the most difficult of circumstances. I can't wait for our men's conference. I mean, the Lord has really put a whole thing in my heart, a whole theme, and I'll be doing Friday night, and then Frank will be doing Saturday uh, morning. And uh, he doesn't know it yet, but I've got a topic for him. And, but the thing that it's going to be about is just recognizing that life can be a struggle, but we can have the victory. We can have the victory. We can either just lay down and let life roll over us. Doesn't mean you've lost your salvation if you're a believer. Doesn't mean you're, you're going to hell if you're a believer. But we can just lay down and let life roll all over us and just... Or we can stand up and say, I belong to Jesus and Jesus is going to use me. Well, here's my challenge to you. If you've never committed, if you're here today and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, you've never been born again, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day that you must commit your life to Jesus Christ. How hard is it to be a Christian? It's easy to become a Christian. But then we have to work in our walk with Christ, not work in the sense of good works, not in the sense of religion, but in the sense of spending time with the Lord, of reading his word, of being willing to allow his word to have conviction in our heart. Because, you know, do you ever hear the, the, the silly story about a guy that went to see his uh, primary care physician and he said to his, his doctor, he said, you know, doctor, he said, every time I bang my head against the wall, I get a headache. And the doctor said to him, well, stop banging your head against the wall. Well, we as believers, it just, it just seems every time I do this, I fall to sin. Well, then stop doing it. Every time I go to here, I fall to sin. Don't go there. That's so extreme. No, it's not. It makes absolute sense. You know, I'm going to stop banging my head against the wall if I get headaches. And so we need to understand, as believers, we have to come to Jesus Christ. And it's so simple. Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. That's all it takes. That's so simple. You don't have to pass an IQ test to become a believer. Otherwise, I wouldn't be. You come to Jesus Christ by simply saying, forgive me, Lord, a sinner. And he will. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're living a defeated life. Satan has you on the ground all the time and he has his foot on your head and he's crushing it in. Brothers and sisters, I'll tell you what you need to do. Start praising God. I praise you, Jesus. I worship you. I thank you, Lord, for everything you've given me, even the trials, even the difficulties. I praise your name. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to heaven. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that I have and the relationship and the fellowship that I have with you. And you'll see your life change. Well, that's my challenge to you this morning. If you're not saved, get saved. If you are saved, get right. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Father, we come before you in Jesus Yeshua's name and how we thank you for your love that you so freely, freely and abundantly poured out into our hearts and lives. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would take the words that we have studied this morning and help us to apply it to our lives and encourage us in all your ways. 
And I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen, brothers and sisters.